0: Thank you, Roy. Thank you, Ruth, Lavinia, Dorothy, Michael, Kane, Briony, and Jenny. It's great. I uh, realise there are a number of visitors here this morning, and so I kind of need to explain uh, what we're doing here at Windsor on Sundays during 2011. We have set out on a journey uh, right through the Bible, from uh, Genesis to Revelation, from January to December, and we're doing that in an attempt to get a sense of the big story, the one unfolding story of redemption. And we're three months into that story. We're three months into this series, which we've called Essential Word. And this morning we've come to, or we've arrived, at the seventh book of the Old Testament, the book of Judges. Now, last year we spent seven Sunday nights looking at these 21 chapters in some detail and therefore we're only going to spend one morning in Judges during this series and this is it. Uh, So these next 20 minutes are very much going to be big broad brushstrokes. This is just going to be a general overview rather than any sort of detailed exposition and I know that that's going to frustrate the life out of some uh, and I'm really sorry about that. Now Judges is not for the faint-hearted. It's not really a book that you usually turn to on Mother's Day, and uh, it's not a book you turn to at a service like this, but we're going to go there anyway, uh, because it is a bit of a a shocking book, and if you are easily offended, it's probably best you don't read it. Uh, But if you can stomach it, let me throw out a challenge to you, and this is a challenge I gave at the start of this series last year uh, as we looked through Judges, but let me throw out a challenge to you. If you hear nothing else, just hear this and take this away. Find some time this week and sit down and read right through the 21 chapters of Judges in one sitting. It will take you about an hour. And if you do, I guarantee you'll be intrigued by its content, which at times is disturbing, it's puzzling, and actually just plain weird. Uh, for example, six verses into the book, and you're confronted by the story of a man who is caught in battle, but rather than killing him, his captors hack off his thumbs and big toes. They do it to humiliate him and also to make him ineffective in any future fights. And then in a rather bizarre twist to the tale, you discover in verse 7, just one verse later, that this particular man had in fact cut off the thumbs and big toes of 70 kings during his lifetime. And so he realises and he admits that God is paying him back for what he did to others. So, Judges is an interesting read, there's no doubt about that. But before we try to capture a sense of the story that it tells and the dangers it actually highlights, but also the character of God that this book reveals I do want to set the scene for those who maybe are visiting or for those who haven't been part of this series. Under Joshua's inspired and courageous and obedient leadership, the Israelites have crossed the River Jordan and they began taking God's given, God's promised land to them. And the first city to fall, as we all know, was that famous city of Jericho. And after it fell, The the Israelites moved on into Canaan. After approximately seven years, Joshua overseen and coordinated the defeat of 31 kings and cities. And so when you come to Joshua 11, you read these words So Joshua took the entire land just as the Lord had directed Moses, and he gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal divisions. And then the land had rest from war. And so the promised land, in a sense, was divvied up. It was split amongst the 12 tribes. But each tribe was then given the responsibility for going in and driving out and clearing out any remaining Canaanites that still occupied their newly allotted territory. Hold that thought for a moment. Now, just before Joshua died at the age of 110, He made a number of farewell speeches. And as part of those farewell speeches, he urged the people to love, to serve, and to obey God with all their hearts. That total devotion, total obedience, total commitment to God was absolutely necessary if they were going to see this through. And so as the book of Judges begins, it's sort of crunch time. It's decision time. What are the Israelites going to do? There's no new overall leader appointed on this occasion. There's no one who's been set aside to step into Joshua's shoes. And so it's over to each tribe and the key people in each tribe to see this through. To actually take it from here. To do what they have been asked to do, what they're expected to do and what they're urged to do. And as you begin to read... The second half of the first chapter of Judges, you begin to sense there's a problem. And so, if you have a Bible with you, can I can invite you to turn to Judges chapter 1. It's page 242, I think, in the Bibles that are in the pews. And I want you to just scan down the second half of this chapter and just look at these verses with me. Verse 19. They, that is the men of Judah, they were unable to drive the people from the plains. Verse 21. The Benjamites, however, failed to dislodge the Jebusites. Verse 27, but Manasseh did not drive out the people of Beth-shan. Verse 28, when Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but they never drove them out completely. Verse 29, nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Gazer and other places. In verse 30, neither did Zebulun drive out the Canaanites living in katron and other places. Verse 33, neither did Naphtali drive out those living in Beth Shemesh. And so right from the outset of the book of Judges, it makes it clear that the Israelites didn't exactly do what they were asked to do. They didn't follow through on what they were called and meant to do. The question is, why is this such a big deal? I mean, if the land was theirs now, why did they need to expel all remaining Canaanites? I mean, could they not just have let some of them live amongst them? Well, to answer that question and to get our heads around that, you've got to rewind the story to a point in time whenever God spoke to Moses regarding the time when the people would enter Canaan and he issued this explicit warning do not do not let those people live in your country those people be in the canaanites if you do they will make you sin against me if you worship their gods it will be a fatal trap for you and so the israelites knew god's ways but for whatever reason they decided to opt for partial rather than total obedience And it's something we often do time and time again. We just go part of the way, rather than the whole way. They were committed as a people to a certain extent, but not entirely. They kind of took God semi-seriously. Do you ever do that? And it's so dangerous, because whenever you compromise just a little bit, on God's word you risk spiritual shipwreck whenever you tolerate a little sin it's often not long before you're up to your neck in it the Israelites didn't clear out all the Canaanites from their territories they didn't do what they were commanded to do and so God's warning of Exodus 23 played out because whenever God says something as we've discovered God means it God sees it through, and God is true to his word. So because they didn't do what they have been asked to do, the warning plays out. And so when you get to Judges chapter 2, you read these heartbreaking words in verses 11 and 12. It's on the screen as well. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the people around them. In other words, the Canaanites did make them sin. Partial obedience proved lethal to their spiritual well-being, as it always is to ours. But notice what it actually looked like. Notice how it was expressed, because again, there are lessons to learn here, and there are dangers to avoid. The sin of the Israelites was actually expressed in three ways here. First of all, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and it's those last six words that make all the difference. Because irrespective of the people's take on morality, irrespective of their take on acceptable behavior, It was God's perspective that mattered, and it always is. And in the eyes of the Lord, they did evil. And we live in a a world that increasingly wants to define and redefine right and wrong. In a world that sort of wants to blur the lines between those two. And so everyone has a different understanding, a different interpretation of what is okay and what's not okay. But at the end of the day, it's not about and never can be about what we or what other people think. The critical issue is that God determines standards and values. Has and always will. And these people who should have known better, they made the choice. And it was a choice. Because Joshua urged them to serve God, obey God, be totally committed to God. It was their decision time, their crunch time. They had choices to make. They chose to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. And it's a danger, it's a risk that our society still faces today. And secondly, they abandoned or they forsook and they eventually just forgot God. Their God, the God who had entered into covenant relationship with them, the God who actually had done so much to them, who had rescued them from Egypt, as it says. And in chapter 2, verse 10, if you look at it, it actually makes the point that a new generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for them. And you see, whenever we don't recall, whenever we don't remember, whenever we don't pass on God's story, people quickly forget. And that's why the promises that Rick and Rosie made this morning are so important. Because they have promised to recall and to remember and to retell God's story to Anna. To pass on their Christian faith. And In 1863, Abraham Lincoln called America to a day of confession and repentance. And the reason he did that was because as he addressed the nation he said these words we have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have grown in numbers, we've grown in wealth and power as no other nation has ever known as ours. But we've forgotten God. And three and a half thousand years ago the people of Canaan forgot God. 150 years ago the people in America apparently were in danger of forgetting God and the question is what about us as a nation? Are we known as one that remembers who God is and tells the stories of what God has done? And finally, these people worshipped other gods. Look at Judges 2 verse 7 and Judges 2 verse 11 because the contrast is striking. In verse 7 it says, The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua. Whereas in verse 11 it says, This new generation served The And as we said last week, every human being is created to worship. It's written into your DNA to worship. And whenever it is not God, whenever it is not the one true, the only God, then we will end up worshipping other gods, counterfeit gods. And although in our context we're not possibly going to worship a bale or an ashtoreth pole, we will find something else. We will create our own substitutes. We will create our own alternative manifestations of idolatry to love, to serve, and to sell our souls to. And these people worshipped. These people followed the gods of the surrounding culture. And again, it's a risk we face. And it's a danger, unfortunately, we can't fall into. And so you're not long into the book of Judges before you discover that the Israelites have lost their way. Their behaviours messed up, their memories messed up, their worship is messed up. God has become a non-issue, just abandoned. And understandably, God reacts. Because look at verse 12 of chapter 2. His anger is triggered, and God cannot sit back. And allow his people to become settled. Cannot allow them to become comfortable or lost in their rebellion. Because God is, and again we're discovering this. God is a jealous God. He loves too much to do nothing. His heart breaks whenever people choose to live their own way. And so he can't just walk away. And it says that in his anger against Israel the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them and he sold them to their enemies all around who they were unable to resist. And whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them. Just as he had sworn to them, they were in great distress. And again, this is just a reminder and I know it's not popular teaching, but it's just a reminder that the wrath of God is a reality. It's something we are stressing here, virtually it seems, as we work our way through the story every week. We cannot and we dare not duck this aspect of God's character. Sin offends a holy God. And therefore it must be addressed, it must be dealt with, it must be judged. We cannot simply do our own thing and then not expect a divine reaction. We may not like it. We may not understand it. We may not even want to believe it. But it's explicitly taught in Scripture. We must never gloss over it. Otherwise, we deconstruct God. And there's lots of people today who are trying to deconstruct God. And God may be slow to anger. As we highlighted and we thanked him for last week, but it doesn't mean God never gets angry. And here in this context and under these circumstances, his anger is provoked or it is aroused and his judgment falls. But as you kind of wrestle with that and try to get your head around it and maybe struggle with it, please look at verse 16 because it's only a verse later. And here is the tension we face with the God of the Bible. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. So you have the wrath of God in one hand, and then almost immediately you're confronted with the grace and mercy of God in the other. Despite Israel's partial obedience, unfaithfulness, ingratitude, God doesn't just say, do you know something? That's it. God had every right to abandon his wayward, sinful, rebellious people, who after all had made the choice to abandon him. Been perfectly understandable if God to said, okay, you've made your choice. I'll now leave you to it. And he could have just left them in the hands of these dark raiders forever. And therefore without hope. And yet in his mercy and his grace, God raises up judges to save the people from their oppressors, to save the people from their great, deep distress. And so this morning, once again, what I want to do is, I want to stand here this morning and I want to thank God for his righteous anger as well as his amazing grace. And I never want to not stress the tension that exists there or gloss over a particular aspect of who God is. But who were and what were these judges? I'm nearly done. Well, the term can be a little bit misleading because we're not talking really about a type of magistrate because that's that's what you tend to think of whenever you hear the word judge. The emphasis here is on a deliverer, a hero, a saviour. And throughout the book of Judges, you meet 12 of these characters who are raised up by God and who rescue the Israelites. Some of them are really well-known, like Samson and Gideon. Some of them are less well-known, like Shamgar and Othniel. Some of their stories are very familiar. Many of their stories, we don't really know if we're honest. But why 12? Why 12? And here we come to one of the sad aspects of this book and one of the sad dimensions of this period in history, which actually stretches for something like 400 years. The reason for 12 was because whenever a judge died, complacency just set in once again. The Israelites drifted back further and even deeper into rebellion and sin. And what did that do? That prompted God's anger. And what did that do? That prompted his judgment. And they were handed over to their oppressors. What did that do? That prompted them to cry out in distress. What did that do? That prompted the grace and mercy to respond and hear the people and to raise up another judge yet again. And therefore one of the distinguishing features about this book is this cycle. It characterizes so much of the narrative and it kind of keeps going round and round kind of like an Old Testament Groundhog Day. And step one, the Israelites' sin, often expressed in these three ways, often expressed by just doing evil in the Lord's sight, by forgetting God, and by just worshipping the gods of the culture around them. And what that does is that violates the covenant relationship. And it triggers God's anger and then God hands them over and then in distress they cry for help and then God responds in grace and he raises up a judge and he delivers them and for a while and for a time there's peace in the land and therefore peace with the people but then whenever that judge dies the whole cycle repeats itself. (coughs) And therefore by the end of the book and I hope you find this experience as you do this this week by the end of the book you wonder God I really don't understand why. This whole story doesn't just end now. Why did you not just wash your hands of these people? Why did you not draw a line in the sand and start all over again? Something that actually God you had indicated you might do. Why did you not do it? But as we discovered last week, as he revealed to Moses at Sinai, God is abounding in in love and faithfulness they just flow out of the Almighty like hot lava. And God has promised Abraham all those years ago, do you know something I'm going to protect and I'm going to bless your offspring? And so although Judges is a story of just the repeated and astounding faithlessness of people, it's also the moving story of the faithfulness of God. Is it graphic? Yes, it is. Is it violent at times? Disturbingly violent. Is it puzzling? Yes. Yes. But primarily, it's a story about a God who, unlike his people, takes his promises seriously. Judges tells the story of a society that has abandoned God despite its rich heritage. It tells the story of a society where, as Roy said at the start of the service, and it's the final verse in the book, it tells the story of a society where everybody's just decided to do, you know what, I'll just do what's right in my own eyes. Thank you very much. It's a story of a society where hardness of heart and unbelief and sin become all too apparent, but not only become all too apparent, become all too accepted. Nobody challenges it anymore. It's a story of a society where counterfeit gods replace the one true God. It's the story of a society that is dangerously like ours. But God is still faithful. And God didn't abandon them And God hasn't abandoned us. And just as God has raised up various judges, deliverers, heroes and saviors for the people back then, we live in the light, and I had to say this, but we live in the light of the fact that God has sent the ultimate judge and deliverer, Jesus Christ, who, through his life, death and resurrection came to offer and still offers rescue from the long-term consequences of our rebellion and sin. But that's rushing away ahead of the story. And so at this point in the journey, let me encourage you to read the book of Judges this week, to make the connections, to listen to the warnings, and to just thank God that he wasn't finished with raising up a saviour for his people.